Chapter Twenty of Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Twenty. Jane Clayton again a prisoner. Though her clothes were torn and her hair dishevelled, Albert Werper realized that he never before had looked upon such a vision of loveliness as that which Lady Greystoke presented in the relief and joy which she felt in coming so unexpectedly upon a friend and rescuer when hope had seemed so far away. If the Belgian had entertained any doubts as to the woman's knowledge of his part in the perfidious attack upon her home and herself, it was quickly dissipated by the genuine friendliness of her greeting. She told him quickly of all that had befallen her since he had departed from her home, and as she spoke of the death of her husband, her eyes were veiled by the tears which she could not repress. "'I am shocked,' said Werper, in well-simulated sympathy. "'But I am not surprised. That devil there,' and he pointed toward the body of Achmet Zek, "'has terrorized the entire country. Your Waziri are either exterminated or have been driven out of their country far to the south.' The men of Achmet Zek occupy the plain about your former home. There is neither sanctuary nor escape in that direction. Our only hope lies in traveling northward as rapidly as we may, of coming to the camp of the raiders before the knowledge of Achmet Zek's death reaches those who were left there, and of obtaining through some ruse an escort toward the north. I think that the thing can be accomplished, for I was a guest of the raiders before I knew the nature of the man, and those at the camp are not aware that I turned against him when I discovered his villainy. Come, we will make all possible haste to reach the camp before those who accompanied Achmet Zek upon his last raid have found his body and carried the news of his death to the cutthroats who remained behind. It is our only hope, Lady Greystoke, and you must place your entire faith in me if I am to succeed. Wait for me here a moment while I take from the Arab's body the wallet that he stole from me. And Werper stepped quickly to the dead man's side, and kneeling sought with quick fingers the pouch of jewels. To his consternation there was no sign of them in the garments of Achmet Zek. Rising, he walked back along the trail, searching for some trace of the missing pouch or its contents, but he found nothing, even though he searched carefully the vicinity of his dead horse, and for a few paces into the jungle on either side. Puzzled, disappointed, and angry, he at last returned to the girl. "'The wallet is gone,' he explained crisply, "'and I dare not delay longer in search of it. We must reach the camp before the returning raiders.' Unsuspicious of the man's true character, Jane Clayton saw nothing peculiar in his plans, or in his specious explanation of his former friendship for the raider, and so she grasped with alacrity the seeming hope for safety which he proffered her, and turning about she set out with Albert Werper toward the hostile camp in which she so lately had been a prisoner. It was late in the afternoon of the second day before they reached their destination, and as they paused upon the edge of the clearing before the gates of the walled village, Werper cautioned the girl to accede to whatever he might suggest by his conversation with the raiders. "'I shall tell them,' he said, "'that I apprehended you after you escaped from the camp, that I took you to Achmet Zek, 
and that as he was engaged in a stubborn battle with the Waziri, he directed me to return to camp with you, to obtain here a sufficient guard, and to ride north with you as rapidly as possible, and dispose of you at the most advantageous terms to a certain slave-broker whose name he gave me. Again the girl was deceived by the apparent frankness of the Belgian. She realized that desperate situations required desperate handling, and though she trembled inwardly at the thought of again entering the vile and hideous village of the raiders, she saw no better course than that which her companion had suggested. Calling aloud to those who tended the gates, Werper, grasping Jane Clayton by the arm, walked boldly across the clearing. Those who opened the gates to him permitted their surprise to show clearly in their expressions, that the discredited and hunted lieutenant should be thus returning fearlessly of his own volition seemed to disarm them quite as effectually as his manner toward Lady Greystoke had deceived her. The sentries at the gate returned Werper's salutations, and viewed with astonishment the prisoner whom he brought into the village with him. Immediately the Belgian sought the Arab who had been left in charge of the camp during Achmet Zek's absence, and again his boldness disarmed suspicion and won the acceptance of his false explanation of his return. The fact that he had brought back with him the woman prisoner who had escaped added strength to his claims, and Mohammed Bayad soon found himself fraternizing good-naturedly with the very man whom he would have slain without compunction had he discovered him alone in the jungle a half-hour before. Jane Clayton was again confined to the prison hut she had formerly occupied, but as she realized that this was but a part of the deception which she and Fecoul were playing upon the credulous raiders, it was with quite a different sensation that she again entered the vile and filthy interior from that which she had previously experienced when hope was so far away. Once more she was bound and sentries placed before the door of her prison, but before Werper left her he whispered words of cheer into her ear. Then he left and made his way back to the tent of Mohammed Bayad. He had been wondering how long it would be before the raiders who had ridden out with Achmet Zek would return with the murdered body of their chief, and the more he thought upon the matter, the greater his fears became that without accomplices his plan would fail. What, even if he got away from the camp in safety before any returned with the true story of his guilt, of what value would this advantage be other than to protract for a few days his mental torture and his life? These hard riders, familiar with every trail and by-path, would get him long before he could hope to reach the coast. As these thoughts passed through his mind, he entered the tent where Mohammed Bayad sat cross-legged upon a rug smoking. The Arab looked up as the European came into his presence. "'Greetings, O oh brother,' he said. "'Greetings,' replied Werper. For a while neither spoke further. The Arab was the first to break the silence. "'And my master, Achmet Zak, was well when you last saw him?' he asked. "'Never was he safer from the sins and dangers of mortality,' replied the Belgian. "'It is well.' said Mohammed Bayad, blowing a little puff of blue smoke straight out before him. Again there was silence for several minutes. "'And if you were dead?' asked the Belgian, determined to lead up to the truth and attempt to bribe Mohammed Bayad into his service. The Arab's eyes narrowed, and he leaned forward, his gaze boring straight into the eyes of the Belgian. "'I have been thinking much, Werper, since you returned so unexpectedly to the camp of the man whom you had deceived, and who sought you with death in his heart. 
I have been with Achmet Zek for many years. His own mother never knew him so well as I. He never forgives, much less would he again trust a man who had once betrayed him. That I know. I have thought much, as I said, and the result of my thinking has assured me that Achmet Zek is dead, for otherwise you would never have dared return to his camp unless you be either a braver man or a bigger fool than I have imagined. And if this evidence of my judgment is not sufficient, I have but just now received from your own lips even more confirmatory witness. For did you not say that Achmet Zek was never more safe from the sins and dangers of mortality? Achmet Zek is dead. You need not deny it. I was not his mother or his mistress, so do not fear that my wailing shall disturb you. Tell me why you have come back here. Tell me what you want, and wherefore, if you still possess the jewels of which Achmet Zek told me, there is no reason why you and I should not ride north together and divide the ransom of the white woman and the contents of the pouch you wear about your person, eh? The evil eyes narrowed. A vicious, thin-lipped smile tortured the villainous face as Mohammed Bey had grinned knowingly into the face of the Belgian. Werper was both relieved and disturbed by the Arab's attitude. The complacency with which he accepted the death of his chief lifted a considerable burden of apprehension from the shoulders of Achmet Zek's assassin, but his demand for a share of the jewels boded ill for Werper when Mohammed Bayad should have learned that the precious stones were no longer in the Belgian's possession. To acknowledge that he had lost the jewels might be to arouse the wrath or suspicion of the Arab to such an extent as would jeopardize his new-found chances of escape. His one hope seemed then to lie in fostering Mohammed Bayad's belief that the jewels were still in his possession, and depend upon the accidents of the future to open an avenue of escape. Could he contrive to tent with the Arab upon the march north, he might find opportunity in plenty to remove this menace to his life and liberty. It was worth trying, and further there seemed no other way out of his difficulty. "'Yes,' he said, "'Achmet Zak is dead.' He fell in battle with a company of Abyssinian cavalry that held me captive. During the fighting I escaped, but I doubt if any of Achmet Zek's men live, and the gold they sought is in the possession of the Abyssinians. Even now they are doubtless marching on this camp, for they were sent by Menelek to punish Achmet Zek and his followers for a raid upon an Abyssinian village. There are many of them, and if we do not make haste to escape, we shall all suffer the same fate as Achmet Zek. Mohammed Bayad listened in silence. How much of the unbeliever's story he might safely believe he did not know, but as it afforded him an excuse for deserting the village and making for the north, he was not inclined to cross-question the Belgian too minutely. And if I ride north with you, he asked, half the jewels and half the ransom of the woman shall be mine. Yes, replied Werper. "'Good,' said Mohammed Bayad. "'I go now to give the order for the breaking of camp early on the morrow.' And he rose to leave the tent. Werper laid a detaining hand upon his arm. "'Wait,' he said. "'Let us determine how many shall accompany us. It is not well that we be burdened by the women and children. 
for then indeed we might be overtaken by the Abyssinians. It would be far better to select a small guard of your bravest men, and leave word behind that we are riding west. Then, when the Abyssinians come, they will put upon the wrong trail, should they have it in their hearts to pursue us. And if they do not, they will at least ride north with less rapidity than as though they thought that we were ahead of them. "'The serpent is less wise than thou, Werper,' said Mohammed Bayad, with a smile. "'It shall be done as you say.' Twenty men shall accompany us, and we shall ride west when we leave the village.' "'Good!' cried the Belgian, and so it was arranged. Early the next morning Jane Clayton, after an almost sleepless night, was aroused by the sound of voices outside her prison, and a moment later M. Fekul and two Arabs entered. The latter unbound her ankles and lifted her to her feet. Then her wrists were loosed. She was given a handful of dry bread— and led out into the faint light of dawn. She looked questioningly at Fekul, and at a moment that the Arab's attention was attracted in another direction, the man leaned toward her and whispered that all was working out as he had planned. Thus assured, the young woman felt a renewal of the hope which the long and miserable night of bondage had almost expunged. Shortly after, she was lifted to the back of a horse, and surrounded by Arabs, was escorted through the gateway of the village and off into the jungle toward the west. Half an hour later the party turned north, and northerly was their direction for the balance of the march. M. Fekul spoke with her, but seldom, and she understood that in carrying out his deception he must maintain the semblance of her captor rather than protector and so she suspected nothing, though she saw the friendly relations which seemed to exist between the European and the Arab leader of the band. If Werper succeeded in keeping himself from conversation with the young woman, he failed signally to expel her from his thoughts. A hundred times a day he found his eyes wandering in her direction and feasting themselves upon her charms of face and figure. Each hour his infatuation for her grew, until his desire to possess her gained almost the proportions of madness. If either the girl or Mohammed Bayad could have guessed what passed in the mind of the man which each thought a friend and ally, the apparent harmony of the little company would have been rudely disturbed. Werper had not succeeded in arranging to tent with Mohammed Bayad, and so he revolved many plans for the assassination of the Arab that would have been greatly simplified had he been permitted to share the other's nightly shelter. Upon the second day out, Mohammed Bayad reined his horse to the side of the animal on which the captive was mounted. It was, apparently, the first notice which the Arab had taken of the girl, but many times during these two days had his cunning eyes peered greedily from beneath the hood of his burnous to gloat upon the beauties of the prisoner. Nor was this hidden infatuation of any recent origin. He had conceived it when first the wife of the Englishman had fallen into the hands of Achmet Zek, but while that austere chieftain lived, Mohammed Bayad had not even dared hope for a realization of his imaginings. Now, though, it was different— only a despised dog of a Christian stood between himself and possession of the girl. How easy it would be to slay the unbeliever, and take unto himself both the woman and the jewels. With the latter in his possession, the ransom which might be obtained for the captive would form no great inducement to her relinquishment, in the face of the pleasures of sole ownership of her. Yes, he would kill Werper, retain all the jewels, and keep the Englishwoman." 
He turned his eyes upon her as she rode along at his side. How beautiful she was! His fingers opened and closed, skinny brown talons itching to feel the soft flesh of the victim in their remorseless clutch. "'Do you know?' he asked, leaning toward her. "'Where this man would take you?' Jane Clayton nodded affirmatively. "'And are you willing to become the plaything of a black sultan?' The girl drew herself up to her full height and turned her head away, but she did not reply. She feared lest her knowledge of the ruse that M. Faycold was playing upon the Arab might cause her to betray herself through an insufficient display of terror and aversion. "'You can escape this fate,' continued the Arab. "'Mohammed Bayed will save you.' and he reached out a brown hand and seized the fingers of her right hand in a grasp so sudden and so fierce that this brutal passion was revealed as clearly in the act as though his lips had confessed it in words. Jane Clayton wrenched herself from his grasp. "'You beast!' she cried. "'Leave me, or I shall call M. Fekul!' Mohammed Bayad drew back with a scowl. His thin upper lip curled upward, revealing his smooth white teeth. "'M. Fekul!' he jeered. There is no such person. The man's name is Verper. He is a liar, a thief, and a murderer. He killed his captain in the Congo country and fled to the protection of Achmet Zek. He led Achmet Zek to the plunder of your home. He followed your husband and planned to steal his gold from him. He has told me that you think him your protector, and he has played upon this to win your confidence that it might be easier to carry you north and sell you into some black sultan's harem. Mohammed Bayard is your only hope, and with this assertion to provide the captive with food for thought, the Arab spurred forward toward the head of the column. Jane Clayton could not know how much of Mohammed Bayard's indictment might be true, or how much false, but at least it had the effect of dampening her hopes and causing her to review with suspicion every past act of the man upon whom she had been looking as her sole protector in the midst of a world of enemies and dangers. On the march a separate tent had been provided for the captive, and at night it was pitched between those of Mohammed Bayad and Verper. A sentry was posted at the front and another at the back, and with these precautions it had not been thought necessary to confine the prisoner to bonds. The evening following her interview with Mohammed Bayad, Jane Clayton sat for some time at the opening of her tent, watching the rough activities of the camp. She had eaten the meal that had been brought her by Mohammed Bayad's negro slave, a meal of cassava cakes, and a nondescript stew in which a new-killed monkey, a couple of squirrels, and the remains of a zebra slain the previous day were impartially and unsavorily combined. But the one-time Baltimore Bell had long since submerged in the stern battle for existence an aestheticism which formerly revolted at much slighter provocation. As the girl's eyes wandered across the trampled jungle clearing, already squalid from the presence of man, she no longer apprehended either the nearer objects of the foreground, the uncouth men laughing or quarreling among themselves, or the jungle beyond, which circumscribed the extreme range of her material vision. Her gaze passed through all these, unseeing, to center itself upon a distant bungalow and scenes of happy security which brought to her eyes tears of mingled joy and sorrow. She saw a tall, broad-shouldered man riding in from distant fields. 
She saw herself waiting to greet him with an armful of fresh-cut roses from the bushes which flanked the little rustic gate before her. All this was gone, vanished into the past, wiped out by the torches and bullets and hatred of these hideous and degenerate men. With a stifled sob and a little shudder, Jane Clayton turned back into her tent and sought the pile of unclean blankets which were her bed. Throwing herself face downward upon them, she sobbed forth her misery until kindly sleep brought her at least temporary relief. And while she slept, a figure stole from the tent that stood to the right of hers. It approached the sentry before the doorway and whispered a few words in the man's ear. The latter nodded and strode off through the darkness in the direction of his own blankets. The figure passed to the rear of Jane Clayton's tent and spoke again to the sentry there, and this man also left, following in the trail of the first. Then he who had sent them away stole silently to the tent flap, and untying the fastenings entered with the noiselessness of a disembodied spirit. End of chapter 20